The following is a message recorded during the morning worship service at Valley Bible Church in Billings, Montana. For more information, please visit our website at vbcmt.org. Man, it is so good to be with you. Um, Valley Bible feels like home to me. Um, just so love everyone here. And I have to say, Pastor Joe is a great shepherd and he's shepherding has been so instructive for me over the years of our friendship and Joe and Ashley to my wife and I are really the best of friends that we could have asked for and so we're thankful for the Lord in providing them to not only us but all to you and so I know that you guys are grateful for their ministry. This morning we'll be in 2 Corinthians 7 so if you would grab your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians 7. And I just want to say, this message, the genesis for this message came from really my own uh, wrestle in my personal sanctification as I thought about my Christian life, as I battle against sin, as all of you do, I wanted to get clarity from the Word of God on repentance. I knew that if I wanted to gain any kind of traction in my Christian life, I needed to have clarity on this issue. And Man, the, the, the study this morning will really be from the overflow of my own personal study and the conviction that the Lord brought. And so if you are going to be convicted during this study, just know it's, I'm just sharing the wealth. Just sharing the wealth that the Lord has given me. And, but I think that all of us can really intimately and experientially acknowledge that there is this battle against the flesh, against sin. I could borrow the words of a man who, who said, who cried out to Jesus, I do believe, help my unbelief. I think all of us here could say something along the lines of, I do repent, help my unrepentance. Sometimes we look at our Christian life and there's so much junk and remaining sin that is needing to be purified. And the Lord has purposed in his word that repentance is the means by which he will purify us, that he will make us more like Christ. But this is nonetheless still a challenge, even though we're no longer in Adam as Christians, and now we are in Christ made a new creation. The old man is dead, but the flesh is still weak. That's why in Ephesians, Paul told them, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old Self. So this is an ongoing battle to deny the flesh. And there is also, in addition to just denying the flesh, assessing the genuineness of our repentance. I mean, how many of us have found ourselves in a particular sin, we're grieved by that sin, we're saddened by the sin and how it offends God, we make a commitment that we're not going to commit that sin again, and yet... A little while later, we find ourselves in that same mud of sin. What's going on there? Well, I believe it's a faith problem. It's a repentance problem. And I think this is why this message, I hope, will be an encouragement to you. It will be convicting, but it will be an encouragement because you will be able to identify what is going on in your life as you battle against sin to honor Christ. So then, 
The antidote simply has to be more than mere human re- effort. It's not, you're not going to walk away from this message thinking, oh man, I just need to crank it out more in my own strength, and if I just grind my teeth out, then maybe I'll have victory over sin. No, repentance is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in believers, in Christians. It requires a robust submission to the truth and total abandonment of self-righteousness. And Paul says in Romans 2, it is the loving kindness of our God that leads us to repentance. So it must be supernatural work of God in his people. So repentance comes from completely and utterly depending on the faithful character of God who loves the unlovable rebels like you and me. The fact that God could love a sinner like me ought to compel us to say, I don't want anything to do with the sin that my Savior died for. So, if you are here this morning and you are discouraged in your battle against sin, let me tell you, God is after your repentance. God wants to work in you this supernatural gift, which is your repentance. He longs for it. He enables you to grow in it until he perfects it, and you no longer have to repent. I mean, can you imagine being in heaven? You no longer have to repent because there is no sin. He has perfected it. But until then, we have work to do. We have work to do. We have to gain clarity from God's word. And so, this morning, I've chosen what I believe is the best description of repentance in all of Scripture. So look with me. At 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9 through 11. Paul writes, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you, Corinthians, have demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Let me give you a little bit of context to 2 Corinthians Second um, Corinthians is most likely Paul's fourth letter to the Corinthians. The letter previous to the Second Corinthians is third is the third letter, or it's commonly known as the severe letter because of the harsh tone that Paul had written to the Corinthians in order to address their stubborn sin. Look at verse eight in chapter seven. He writes, "For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while." So Paul wanted to address this stubborn, unrepentant sin and how they deal with a member in the church, and he had written this stubborn or this severe letter to this stubborn church, and it had caused them grief, and it caused Paul grief, but only for a little while. And in this particular portion that we will study, verse 9 through 11, we see that Paul's sorrow actually turned into great rejoicing. This is the afterglow of Paul's rebuke to the Corinthians. 
And there is great joy for Paul even when a Christian or a church is made sorrowful because it has produced repentance. And in our morning together, we will be looking at four reasons why someone could rejoice over sorrow that is according to God. Four reasons for rejoicing over godly sorrow. How could someone look at another person who is grieved and saddened and sorrowful and rejoice? Well, we'll see four reasons why Paul could do that. First reason is this. Godly sorrow produces repentance. Look at verse 9. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Initially, I, I have to admit, this statement has seemed, it's rather um, interesting. You know, Paul saying, hey, I rejoice that you were sad. I mean, imagine someone coming up to you on a Sunday morning and saying, hey, I'm, I'm really glad that you're sad. You know, that just is not really something that you want to hear. You're, you're glad that I'm sad. But notice that Paul is rejoicing over the Corinthians' great sadness and distress because they were sorrowful to the point of repentance. The end result of their grief was repentance. And so you have to kind of understand, what is repentance? Well, here's a quick definition of it. It literally means a change of mind. I'm sure you've heard that. But when you survey the entirety of Scripture passages, you see that repentance is turning away from sin and turning to God for forgiveness. Turning away from sin and dead works in a change of mind, in a change of will, to turn to the forgiving nature of our God. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul writes of the Thessalonians, you turn to God from idols to serve a living, true God. Proverbs 28.13 says, he who confesses and forsakes transgressions will find compassion. So here Paul tells the Corinthians that he rejoices that their sorrow has produced repentance. And in similar ways, I'm sure uh, Nathan confronting David of his sin against Bathsheba rejoiced greatly as he probably read in the Psalter, in Psalm 51, of, 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 of David's repentance. And I'm sure Nathan recognize, wow, I had to do this hard thing in confronting my friend and exposing his sin, and yet here is this repentance that has been produced. But notice that not all types of sorrow leads to repentance. By implication, because Paul's saying, hey, I'm glad that your sorrow has led to repentance, but you have to realize not every sorrow leads to repentance. There are types of griefs and sadness that does not lead to repentance. The quintessential example would be Judas Iscariot. He was grieved after Jesus was crucified and that he had been the prime betrayer of Jesus. He felt remorse and he returned the 30 pieces of silver and went away and hanged himself. So there is this remorse that did not lead him to come back to Christ and plead for forgiveness, but instead resulted in the end of his life. Listen to Pharaoh in Exodus 9 
after the seventh plague, he said this, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. Wow, Pharaoh said that after the seventh plague. I and my people are the wicked ones, and yet his repentance was phony. His grief was worldly. So do you know what this means? You and I can be sad about sin. You and I can be tearful over wrongdoings and how we have offended God. But the Bible says that we can do all these things. We can be sad about sin. We can say what the Bible says about a particular sin. We can even stop a particular sin for a season. But unless there is genuine repentance, all those tears, all those sad moments are not the kind of sadness that Paul would rejoice over. Now, I do want to say that this obviously does not mean that you somehow achieve moral perfection, but the truly repentant, the truly sorrowful ones will keep on repenting. That's why, I mean, all of us need kind of these kind of studies and these kind of messages where we're reminded of our need, our continual need for repentance. That we need to be recalibrated. Sometimes our Christian life isn't what it ought to be, and the Lord exposes that in his gracious providence, and we need to grow in our understanding of repentance. This is why Paul can rejoice over the sorrows of the Corinthians. They were sorrowful to the point of repentance. Now, how did Paul know then that their repentance was the real deal? Okay, yeah, he he rejoiced that their sorrow produced repentance, but how does Paul know that their sorrow was the real deal? Well, that leads us to reason number two. Godly sorrow preserves fellowship. Look at the second half of verse 9. He rejoices, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, or according to God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Here, Paul elaborates by saying that he knew that the Corinthian sorrow was not phony, but the real deal because they were made sorrowful, literally according to God, according to his will, according to his plan, according to his purposes. The idea here is that the sorrow was in keeping with God's holy standard. So in other words, the Corinthians, whom Paul had rebuked and corrected and written this harsh word, they, were, they, were, they became sorrowful because they recognized what they had done had offended God. This is the essential ingredient of any genuine repentance. It is first looking at our sin properly in relation to God that I have sinned against a holy, righteous creator. So until we see our sin as chiefly a violation of God's holy command, we're not going to repent. You're not going to repent unless you see your sin as what it really is. It is an offense against God. This is why the prayer of the Pharisee in Luke 19 was phony. It was a horizontal rationalization. You know the, the, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and the Pharisee goes up standing you know, proudly and says, God, I thank you that I am not like these other people, these swindlers, these immoral adulterers, 
And even like this tax collector, I'm thankful that I'm not like these people. And you know, the tax collector couldn't even lift up his eye. Pounding his chest, he says, have mercy on me, the sinner. I mean, that is a, that is a work of grace. Only a person who, whom the Lord is drawing to himself could view himself that way. The chief of sinner. So truly, God's godly sorrow would see how even one violation of the law in my life has created this massive chasm between me and God. So it is the type of grief that is primarily and predominantly concerned with one's relationship, one's fellowship with God. This is why I said godly sorrow preserves fellowship. It preserves fellowship with God. This is why Paul could say, I knew that your repentance was real because you were made sorrowful according to God, according to his plan, according to his divine purposes. But that's not it. Godly sorrow also preserves fellowship with man. Look at the rest of verse 9. So that, so you were made sorrowful to the, to, according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. What I think Paul is saying here is that he's rejoicing with the Corinthians because they were made sorrowful and they had repented. And because of their repentance, they were not being limited to the sanctifying grace that was available to them through the apostles. So that you would not suffer any loss through us. Because if there was phony repentance or phony godly sorrow, the apostle Paul would say, we can't have genuine fellowship. You would suffer loss through us. We would be ministering to you, but it would be like pulling teeth. But if there is humility, if there is genuine repentance, man, there is this preservation of fellowship. This, I think, for us is an incredible reminder that when a pastor or a disciple or a mentor or a parent in your life ministers to you, it's actually a gain if you are made sorrowful according to God. If you are sorrowful according to... or. Um, so if you're sorrowful and resulting in repentance. You know, as I've ministered to young people over the years, you could literally spend months and years with a faithful mentor, with a faithful discipler, and you might not even repent a little bit. They're, they're pouring in the truth, but, but they are wanting to have you submit to the word of God, but if you are unwilling to have your sins exposed then you're going to lack fellowship. You're going to lack true blessings that God wants to pour into his children. So if you avoid godly sorrow, meaning if you hide, if you excuse, if you lie, if you cover up sin, there's going to be great disappointment because you're not going to enjoy the rich, the, the rich blessings of fellowship that God has prepared for his people. But the encouragement here for all of us is that this was not the case with the Corinthians. They had repented, and Paul says, I'm so thankful you had repented, that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance according to God. So godly sorrow preserves fellowship with God and man. Here's number, reason number three in why we can rejoice when someone is made sorrowful according to God, because godly sorrow precedes Salvation. 
Look at verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Notice here, there's two types of sorrows that we've already talked about, but here it's even more vividly illustrated. Two types of sorrow. One is according to God, and the other is of the world. In fact, on the outside, these two sorrows may look identical. Here's what I mean. Um, We just talked about Judas Iscariot. There would be the counterpart example of that would be the Apostle Peter. Both on the night of... Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion wept. The scripture is utterly clear that these men were grieved, and yet only one of them truly repented. So there you see the difference between the two types of sorrow, one that is according to God and one that is according to the world. So what is the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? Well, look back at the text. For the sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret. Without regret, what does that mean? Well, you don't regret forfeiting sin. You don't regret giving up sin. You don't regret exposing sin. You don't regret the consequences that come from having to battle and kill that sin. One theologian said this, There is a great pain. I mean, I love that because it just puts it at a human level. All of us come here. We're not imagining that we all showed up here perfectly sinless. All of us come here with our baggages. And he says, the the theologian said, battling sin is a difficult thing. It's a painful thing. And then he says, so embrace the pain of the kill. Embrace it. Embrace this reality that God wants to grow you and wants to present You mature in Christ through this process of repentance. Repentance without regret. Additionally, godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. I believe here this is talking about salvation in a comprehensive sense. Here's what I mean. When you sometimes read your Bible, you see salvation both in talking about conversion and also in sanctification, and even in glorification. But here, particularly, I believe, it's talking about repentance that is required for your, sal- for your conversion and for your sanctification. The point is nonetheless clear. If you are sorrowful to the point of seeing your sin as a gross hypocrisy and offense against God, then that grief will produce salvation. That is a sure guarantee. If you're an unbeliever, then if you repent, then you will be granted the greatest gift that God could give you, salvation, freedom from the bondage of sin. And if you are in Christ and you repent, then you are going to be granted the blessings of a sanctified life, a life that diligently battles against sin in the strength that Christ provides. And so, this is the kind of Um, result that godly sorrow produces. What's amazing is that the Corinthians humbly accepted whatever was necessary to bring repentance into their congregation. Whatever was necessary, they they, they were willing to do it. 
They were counting the cost. In fact, when Titus came back with a report of how this church was doing, he had great things to say. Yes, obviously there was still remaining sin in the church, and that won't be perfected until the Lord returns and purifies his bride completely, and, and we are all glorified with him. But until then, there will continually be this work of sanctification. And this was happening in Corinth. In fact, they embraced their circumstances as God's blessing in their lives. They were not thinking horizontally, but they were thinking vertically. Is that sometimes how you view exposure of sin? As God's blessing in your life? That when sometimes you lash out in a moment of frustration and anger, do you look at that and go, Lord, thank you for exposing that because I knew that was in there. And you had to bring about this means to help me see it because I was blinded. I mean, this is why all of us have blind spots and the Lord is so good in his surgical ways of exposing those blind spots by saying, hey, look, look at this area in your life. For those of you who are parents, man, the Lord's given those means of grace in your life, in children. You know, sometimes people call children a blessing, and I think that's right. You know, they are a blessing because they are used by the Lord to make us more mature. To make us more mature because as parents, we're not as mature as we ought to be. You know, it's kind of interesting that God gives us children when we are least mature in our Christian faith. Well, to make us more mature. And he does that by exposing sin. So do you see those exposures of sin as a blessing from God? We ought to. We ought to. Now, the opposite of that view, that perspective, is found in the second half of verse 10. The opposite of godly sorrow, the opposite of repentance without regret and that leads to salvation is this. Look at this last half of verse 10. The sorrow of the world produces death. Genuine repentance says, I'm not going to regret abandoning my sin, but worldly sorrow says, oh, I don't want to forsake my sin because it gives me pleasure. It gives me comfort. It gives me ease. I don't want to let go of that. If I let go of that, then, then I'm actually going to have to battle and have to deny the flesh. And so this worldly sorrow originates from the world. It's for the sake of the world. It lives for the temporary. It lives for the comforts of the flesh. In fact, one pastor put it this way, worldly sorrow is sad because people know about your sin. Godly sorrow is sad because God knows about your sin. Puts the fear of God right in our heart. In other words, this kind of sorrow is distressed not because sin has offended God, but because it has caused loss of some sort of earthly privileges, earthly comforts, earthly means of exalting oneself. And notice what it says. Man, this is just shocking. The sorrow of the world produces death. I mean, what was running through my mind when I read that is Genesis 3. Worldly sorrow, and it brought death. I mean, these ancestors of ours, Adam and Eve, they had sinned against God. God had given them a clear command of what to do and what not to do, and they broke it. 
And instead of pleading to God for his mercy and repenting of their sin, they hid. And not only did they hid, they started blame shifting. Oh, it was the woman that you had given me. Oh, it was actually you because you gave me the woman. So instead of repenting, they were embarrassed. They were only looking at sin as a horizontal offense. And what did that bring? Well, it brought death. It brought death into our world. Sin entered in and death came along with sin. And so Paul here simply says, if you are going to be only be made sorrowful according to the world standard in order to preserve something about your worldly comfort, then you're going to face death, separation from God, separation from the fellowship that you could enjoy if you were made sorrowful according to God. You know, one last thing, that just a quick comment, is worldly sorrow is simply self-pity. It's looking at the loss of privileges. It's filled with all sorts of regrets, especially in the department of self-pity. Oh, I shouldn't have confessed my sin because now I have lost these reputations and privileges that I used to enjoy. But the antidote for this kind of self-pity is to see the consequences and fallouts from sin as a fatherly grace from God. I mean, this is why David in Psalm 51 could say, the bones that you have broken, let them rejoice. If God is going to bring a certain consequence for the sin that I have committed so that I would learn the bitterness of sin, then let it have its full result. I mean, that is a bold prayer, isn't it? I mean, when was the last time we had our quiet time and we were just letting the Lord say, okay, cut me up, Lord. Whatever you want to expose, whatever consequences you want to bring about so that I would hate sin like you hate sin, let it happen. This is why um, in Valley of Vision, one of the Puritan prayers, which is so, I mean, it just, it's human. The Puritans, we elevate them as we ought in terms of God's grace in their lives, but they were human. And one of the Puritans wrote down this prayer, I repent of my repentance. How could he say that? Well, because sometimes we realize my repentance isn't what it ought to be. And so God needs to expose the ugliness of my sin and help me see the bitter consequences of my sin and help me repent of my repentance. And so godly sorrow preserves or precedes salvation and sanctification. Now, the fourth reason that Paul could rejoice over the Corinthians' sorrow is that godly sorrow pursues fruits. Godly sorrow pursues fruits. Um, This is pretty simple and easy to understand because all of you know people who profess Christ, but but you go, ah, their profession just doesn't live up to their life. Well, why is that? Well, because godly sorrow would pursue fruits. You wouldn't be perfected in your fruits until glory, until heaven, but you would continue to pursue these fruits. And for the remainder of our time, we're going to look at 
I'm so sorry for those of you who are taking notes. We're going to look at seven fruits of godly sorrow. It's just in the text, so I, your, your issue is not with me. I'm just trying to be faithful to the text. Seven fruits of godly sorrow. In seminary, they teach you, hey, don't have two outlines, you know, two points, but I couldn't, I couldn't help myself. There are seven fruits of godly sorrow. And we're going to answer this question going back to our original question, which is how do I know I've actually repented? How do I know? Well, you're going to see seven fruits of genuine repentance. Look at verse 11. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the manner or in the matter. Notice that Paul is saying to the Corinthians, I know you were made sorrowful according to God because there were undeniable fruits. And as we walk through each of this fruit, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the fruit. I'm going to define it in what I, you know, try to kind of have a concise definition. And then we'll just talk about them for a brief couple minutes on each fruit so that we have a grasp of this is what true repentance looks like. So the first fruit is this earnestness. Behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. And the definition I came up with for earnestness is this, proactive enthusiasm to kill sin. Earnestness is proactive enthusiasm to kill sin. This means that sin is not taken casually. You don't look at sin and throw sticks at it and say, hey, this is little, I mean, I'll just hide it under the rug and it'll be fine. But instead, there is a diligent proactivity to kill sin. It speaks of eagerness to accomplish a task. It's kind of like a soldier being ready to be sent out to war. And so you, as a Christian, declare war against sin and battle, battle it every day. You're battle ready. There's preparedness about this quality that drives Christians to study sin and know its sophisticated and deceiving nature. I mean, this is why I love how the scripture just cuts us up so differently. I mean, all of us can be here this morning hearing the same message, and yet the Lord's working in a hundred different ways. Isn't that amazing? And so you need to know your particular sin and its besetting nature in your own life. This is why even in Hebrews 12 it says, laying aside though the weight and sin that so easily entangles us. The sin that may easily entangle me might be different than the sin that easily entangles you. And so you need to be diligent about studying your sin and its sophisticated nature. This is why Paul says in Romans 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Number two, vindication. What vindication? This is the second fruit. Here's the definition I came up with. All-out vigor to not rationalize sin. All-out vigor to not rationalize sin. NAS translates it as vindication. ESV translates it it as eagerness to clear yourselves. In other words, repentance produces such a God-fearing fervor to not justify or blame-shift past sins, but to vindicate and separate yourself from any of ongoing habit of sin. 
It is to say with David in Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. It is to have this open book policy in your life to say, Lord, whatever you want to do in my life so that I would not hide sin, let it happen. Number three, indignation. This is self-indicting distress over sin's offense against God. Self-indicting distress over sin's offense against God. I use the word self-indicting because it's sometimes in repentance, it's easy to look at someone else and say, oh, you got that sin, you got that sin in your life. Oh, I see that. Oh, you probably don't see this sin. But it's really hard to indict ourselves, isn't it? And so this indignation is a disgust and distraught over how my sin has offended God. You can think of it this way. It's a holy hatred of your sin, which produces self-indictment rather than self-defense. Sometimes we come up with all sorts of non-biblical terms to describe sin. And so practically, what does it look like? Well, you just use the most straightforward biblical terms to define sin. You know, sometimes people say things like, well, I was hungry. You know, I was, I was tired. You know, I didn't get that much sleep last night. Or now there's a new word for it. I'm, I'm hangry. You know, it's, but as I thought about it, we've got to use biblical terminology. How, how often have you confessed the different types of anger to your children, to your spouse? Man, that was, that was anger. That was actually rage. That was malice. There was bitterness. There was jealousy. There was selfish ambition. Indignation would say, okay, I'm going to start to use biblical terminology to describe sin so that I would not hide sin. I would not cover sin. We were just singing, what love could remember no wrongs we've done? This propels all of us to repent like this because we realize, okay, all my sins that I've tried to hide in my Christian life, God has covered all of that. He has forgiven me fully. I mean, I love that in our Sunday school hour that that's what we talked about. God forgives lavishly, generously, and freely. And so that ought to motivate us to expose sins in our lives and to hate it, to hate it with all might. Number four, fear, all-consuming awareness of God's presence. That's the definition I came up with. All-consuming awareness of God's presence. How do we know that we have godly sorrow? If we have reverence for God's presence in our lives. This is exactly why Joseph... I mean, you, you see all of these positive and negative examples all throughout Scripture. Joseph was a positive example. When Potiphar's wife grabbed him and wanted him to lie with him, what does Joseph say? How could I do this great evil and sin against my God? No one was around. No one was looking. But Joseph said, I can't sin against God. This fear will produce, or this fear is the fruit of godly sorrow. Number five, what longing. The definition I came up with that is deep desire to reconcile relationship with God. 
deep desire to reconcile relationship with God. This is speaking of radical, authentic desire for some traction in your Christian life and to be reconciled to God, to be restored in a sweet fellowship with him. I mean, I don't have to tell you this, but I know it in my personal life that when there is this besetting sin in my life, it's hard to pray. It's difficult to go before the Lord when I have just let my sins splash on my family members. And so this longing says, I want to be reconciled with God. I, I, want, to, I want to not only get rid of the discomfort of guilty conscience, but I yearn to actually have power over sin. And how do we know this yearning is genuine? Because sometimes, I, I don't know about you, but you can have these desires and strong impulses, but you don't really know if those are the real deal. I will ask yourself this question. Would you still long for victory if it meant your life would be drastically inconvenient by the measure you take to be obedient to God? Would you still long for sanctification if it meant that you would be you would be made very inconvenient. Your life would not be simple as maybe it is today. In other words, if there is a way in which you could be helped to gain traction, but you're unwilling to do it, then you wouldn't really know if your longing is genuine. It's the, it's the mindset of whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, I want to honor God. Whatever it takes, I want to please him. Because he saved me. He gave me eternal life. And this life, whatever I face, is just momentary. Don't you just kind of cringe when Paul says, oh, this momentary affliction. I'm going, Paul, your affliction was not momentary. What are you saying? If your affliction was momentary, then what am I going through? But Paul was saying that in light of eternity. And so this kind of longing is produced when we have an eternal perspective about our relationship with God. Number six, zeal. What zeal? It's an intense devotion to bring glory to God by ridding of sin. This word really summarizes why we do what we do. An intense devotion to bring glory to God by ridding of sin. This is why we do it. This is why we're here this morning. This is why you're sitting under this kind of preaching week in and week out. To bring God glory. To submit your life under his lordship and his authority. This is why we go to work on our sanctification with fear and trembling. It's the internal burning and burden to get sin out of your life. Someone with this kind of zeal has um, a specific battle plan against sin. You know, I've loved discipling young men in my life. Um, and sometimes these young men who've got this zeal will come and after our previous discipleship meeting where we were digging into scripture, they will come with an extensive battle plan. Hey, we talked about this particular sin in my life and here are ways that I want to forsake it. Here are the ways that I want to put on righteousness and here are the ways that I know there are portals in my life and I need to cut those out. I love that. I love that when Christians do that because I sit there and I'm going... That's what I got to do. That's what I got to do in my life. And so, as I said in the beginning, I'm sharing from the overflow of the wealth that the Lord has 
brought in my life and my study. But this has got to be all-out effort collectively as a church, that there should be this zeal that marks Valley Bible Church, zeal when it comes to forsaking sin and bringing glory to God. Number seven, avenging of wrong. What avenging of wrong? This is holy vengeance against sin. Really, this is nothing new. This is just I mean, Paul's way of just looking at repentance in seven different ways, but this is seeing sin as God sees it. This means that you and I do not avoid or run from consequences that God wants to dispense, but you own the consequences. You own the, the, the inconveniences. Man, I think about that with King David. You realize King David had sinned greatly against God with the murder of Uriah and adultery with Bathsheba. You know, he was a man after God's own heart because he had repented and he has given us two great psalters or psalms in the psalter of repentance, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. But imagine, I mean, I, I think of it this way. Imagine if your prayer of repentance was put to music and next Sunday we were singing it. That's, that's the kind of humility that David displayed by writing down the fruit of his repentance in two psalms so that for generations the people of God could benefit from it. Is that sometimes how you think about your repentance? That when you have repented over sin, that you want to share the fruit of God's grace in your life to those around you? Hey, remember that sin? Man, God's given me clarity on that. I'm still working on it. I am not perfect, but I'm working on it. I'm reading good supplementary resources. I'm bringing the scripture to life. I'm having my pastor help me think through all the ugliness and the complicated, sophisticated way that sin wages war against us. It's Hebrews 12, 11, right? All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Do you see the sanctifying work of repentance as producing peaceful fruit of righteousness in your life? Because God loves you. I, I, I say that to my wife all the time. Hey, whenever there's sin being exposed, whenever there's shortcomings being exposed, God loves us. That's why he's doing this. If God didn't love us, we would not see our sins at all. I mean, that would be a miserable life, going through this world thinking, oh, I'm perfect. I, I've mastered humility. Now I'm going to teach everyone how to be humble. I mean, can you imagine? You would have no friends. And yet it's the grace of God that you would see your sin as God sees it and have holy vengeance against it. And then finally, it says, in kind of an all-comprehensive way, Paul says, in everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Really, what, he, what Paul means by that is that the Corinthians had repented of their sins, and it proved to Paul of their innocence from current and future enslavement. They were no longer enslaved to it. Yeah, they still sinned. They still needed to repent, but they were no longer dominated by the sin that they had repented of. So, as we close, if you are living by these qualities listed above, 
in regards to a particular sin, then the fruits are proving to you and are no, and you can be sure that the sins are no longer holding you captive as its prisoner. And church, I do want to say this is not easy. And I was telling someone right before our service that, man, I'm bringing two somewhat heavy messages, one on forgiveness and one on repentance. But it's because I love you all. I mean, you have been such a blessing to me and my friend, Pastor Joe. And so I say all of this because I love you all, and I know that there is going to be hard work ahead for the Christian who wants to have real influence, real influence in a community like Billings. And so I pray that the Lord would enrich your lives through a study like this. Let's pray together.